I actually grew up here in Harford County. Um, I went to high school with Brian, so that's kind of my connection uh, to this church here. And we started a ministry in Nicaragua called Families in Transition, or FIT. Um, we, we actually usually say it like fit together in Nicaragua. Um, it's families that are adopting orphans in, um, in Nicaragua. So I'm going to talk to you today about our work with that, um, that specific ministry. So I used PowerPoint, which is kind of old school, I guess, and these guys have something different. So I'm just going to have to like give them a little hand signal or something when they're supposed to change my slide. Um, so you can change it. Uh, that's my very random. Okay. Um, so this verse, um, from James is pretty commonly quoted. Even if you don't have it memorized, you probably recall that if someone said James 1 27, it was like a quiz or something. You would probably remember that it, it relates somehow to orphans and widows. Um, for the sake of time here this morning, I'm going to focus on the orphan portion of this. Uh, it's one of those challenging verses because it's given as a command as opposed to a suggestion. And I don't know about you, but I've never been one to accept commands very well. I think after 18 years of marriage, Wyeth usually, Wyeth knows now it's better to tell me the exact opposite of what he wants me to do. Uh, and that usually gets me to do it. Um, Perhaps because it's given as a command here, many of us don't know how it exactly applies to our lives. Are we all supposed to show up at orphanages and pick up a bunch of kids to bring home with us? Uh, that's, that sounds really hard. <laughs> I mean, those kids are super cute, but they usually come with some special needs. Uh, and kids are expensive and time-consuming. Can't we just pray for them, right? Is that, isn't that all that means? Um, Well, we figured praying for them wasn't exactly what God was asking us to do. So we started seriously considering adoption after our girls started kindergarten. That was then eight years ago, we took our first family mission trip to Nicaragua. Um, We were able to spend a few days there with a missionary family that had adopted four orphans. And so we proudly told them of our interest to do the same. We want to save a child, we said. Uh, You know, just like James 27, James 1, 27. Uh, He can change it. Um, But I'll never forget how that man looked at me at that moment. And he said, with all his years of experience, he looked at me and said, you're not ready for that. We were like, excuse me? What? Uh, After we picked our jaws up off of the floor, he continued. He said, go home, do foster care in your own community, and learn what it means to take care of hurting children. So for the next five years after that, we fostered uh, 17 kids here in Hartford County. Um, And we realized how clueless we were about caring for hurting kids. None of those kids became adoptable, so we just figured maybe we're supposed to foster. Is that what we're supposed to do? But we still felt God calling us back to Nicaragua to spend more time there. We didn't know what that would look like or what that would mean. And we didn't realize how God would use our fostering experiences to prepare us for the other adoption service work that he had there. So we picked up our family and moved to Nicaragua two years ago. You might be thinking, ah, so that's when they decided to go adopt as missionaries. How faithful and obedient of them. No. We've met people who grew up saying, I always want to be a missionary. No, that's not us. We're like normal people, just like you guys. Um, We knew God wanted us to go to Nicaragua, but we pretty much fought it as hard as we could. 
until we felt like we were going to be put in the belly of a whale unless we finally went. So we went, but seeing as how we're human, we gave God a year. We said, you can have one year, then we're coming back. It was two years ago, so you can see how that worked out for us. Um, you can change it. Yeah. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing there, um, but God did. So from the very first day we landed, we actually arrived on a flight with an adopting family. And as it turns out, they were living in the house next door to us. Um, God kept putting these people in our paths, these families that were coming to Nicaragua to adopt. But still, after nine months, we figured we can check that box off of our list. We've done the whole missionary thing abroad. We started making plans to come back. Then a friend came over to tell us a story about a mom who'd been in Nicaragua. Uh, she was adopting two school-age kids. And I just want to say, these photos are not indicating any particular child I'm going to talk about. They're just, they are photos of kids in Nicaragua, but they're, they're different kids. Um, Anyway, this woman had been there for five weeks, and she was living in the apartment next door to my friend. And she knocked on the door one day, and she said, I hear you. Hello, I hear you speaking English in there. I don't speak Spanish. I'm living here with these two kids who don't speak my language. They don't even really like me. My husband's not here. I need help. Can you help me? And my friend was, was her and her husband run feeding programs in Nicaragua. They feed thousands of kids a day. They have a program for college students. They have their own families. And like all of the other missionaries that are sent for other purposes, they don't have the time or resources to care for these adopting families. And so, unfortunately, the day, the day after that, that mom got on a plane and left without the kids. She said, I can't do this. I can't live on my own, away from my family and my support, and care for these kids. And our friend showed up on our doorstep the day after that and said, Wendy, you have to help these families. Wyeth and I looked at each other, and we said, oh, crap. Because we knew, we knew she was right. Um, But we were wondering, how are we supposed to do this? We have no idea about starting a ministry. We pretty much kept our jobs when we moved to Nicaragua. We work remotely on the internet so that we didn't have to fundraise because fundraising is scarier than actually moving to a foreign country for us. But uh, like those adopting moms, we just wanted to go back to the land of easy, which is now what we call the U.S. Uh, We just kept picturing the belly of that big fish, though, and we stepped forward one baby step at a time. Our first step was to rent a large home where we could host the families who are adopting. In Nicaragua, like many countries worldwide, families must stay in the country to finalize the adoption. This can be anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months. Unfortunately, we know families in Africa right now that have been stuck there a year because they can't, the government has not, is not giving visas, and they have legally adopted these kids in Africa, but they cannot leave. Um, so... In Nicaragua, the mom usually comes by herself. The dad usually stays in the States to work and take care of any other kids that they have. And she knows no one else but maybe her lawyer, who probably doesn't even speak English. She has no car. She has no support network. She doesn't speak the language. And she spends her days trying to care for kids who don't even like her. <laughs> they didn't ask for this, especially if they're older. Now, if it's a, if it's a younger child, the, you know, they, they bond with you much quick, more quickly. But if it's an older child, they've got to learn. You each have to learn to love each other. 
So easy and comfortable is not a fair description of any of this process, not to mention expensive. So within a year of our oh crap epiphany, as I'm calling it, we have had the privilege to we had had the privilege to know over two dozen kids who now have forever families. And the set of sisters that moved in this past spring would become some of our favorites, but also uh, we learned that they were among the most hurt that we had ever worked with. So I'm going <laughs> to, I actually changed the names of all of these kids, and I changed the name to Raquel before I realized that it was your wife's name, um, <laughs> because it's just a, a common name for girls in Nicaragua. Um, but in any case, so the first time that Ra- Raquel, the older of the two sisters, met her second parents, uh, they showed her a variety of items that symbolized the new life that they had for her, clothes and photos and all kinds of stuff like that. Well, she pulled all the items into a big pile on the floor and then started stomping up and down on them. And in order to get her point across, as if it hadn't already been, she threw in a, threw a few swear words and some obscene gestures. She's a fiery one, the adoption care workers had told the mom. That's one way to put it, she thought. By age six, this child had been neglected, abused, broken, and thrown away by a family who didn't know how to do otherwise. She was born as a consequence of prostitution. She never knew what it meant to have an earthly father. She was sent to the streets to sell tortillas before most kids leave the crib, and so she never knew the safety or security of home. She was stabbed and left for dead by her mother under the watchful eye of her grandmother and shows she never knew the unconditional love of family. Oops. Um, these moms that come to adopt these kids leave the safety of everything that they have back home. They leave the comfort to go adopt a child. And we started to wonder, does that sound familiar? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus left his home, his comfort. Oh, sorry, you can turn that. Um, He left his home, his comfort, and his father to come here and adopt us as our own. When these moms are in the thick of it, when they've heard a million I hate yous, and that translates into any language, um, when they haven't seen their husbands for months, and they can't even remember why they started this whole process to begin with, we just remind them that they're following in Jesus' footsteps, doing something that's near and dear to God's own heart. And that even Jesus tried to find a way out. And I'd be lying if I told you that I didn't often want out of this. I didn't ask for this. We didn't ask, we didn't ask for any of this. This is what God placed in front of us. This is the task that he's given us. But there are plenty of days when, when we wake up and think, okay, we're going to do it again. What's, what's happened to this child? How do you deal with all of this pain that these kids have dealt with? And then how do you look at these moms and try and help them walk through this process? Thankfully, he provides a sort of glory strength. Um, This is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it's from the message version. And I love how this explains the strength that God provides. Uh, It calls it, It's not the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but the glory strength that God gives. It's a strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy. 
So the last thing I want to tell you, before I close, I want to tell you about a story of how um, God has provided um, the glory strength for that child uh, and her mother, Raquel, that I was just talking about. The mom that came to adopt her was named Stacy, and uh, she's probably one of the most prepared adopting moms that we've seen in the last two years. She's actually a social worker in the States, and this is her second uh, international adoption. So that should mean she knows everything about, I mean, as much as she's going to know. Most of these families don't know half of what she knew. She even knew the statistics that up to 90% of kids raised in poverty in Nicaragua are sexually abused by age five. And up to 60% of that is done at the hands of a close family member. Plus the fact that the kids age out by age 14. And that means that they end up on the streets, perpetuating the cycle that put them there in the first place. It didn't take long, though, for me to realize that even Stacy was struggling. After three months of caring for Raquel and her sister, she was ready to go home. And really ready to go home. It was late on the evening of Good Friday when she comes to me and says, I don't think I can do this anymore. I'm empty, and I don't understand why God is keeping me here. I just want to go home. And my response, um, all I could think to say was, I've noticed God doesn't take you home when you're ready to go home. He seems to wait until the kids are ready to go home. And so that didn't make her very happy, because each night, for the past month that she had been sharing our home, Raquel had been telling long stories. They came in fast and furious Spanish, tales of being threatened and beaten, abused and stabbed. It wasn't pleasant dinner conversation. But she seemed to have this unabated need to share and share again until someone could take away the power that this story had over her. Between my daughters and I, we sat around the table and we pieced together the story. I took five years of French, okay? not Spanish. We've been learning a lot. But between the three of us, we, we figured out what she was talking about. Oh, she's using the word for knife. Wait, espalda, that's back, my kid says. What, mom? Somebody put a knife in her back? And she showed us the scars. So after church on Easter morning, a few days later, Stacy asked me to resume a conversation that we had started earlier. Do you think you could ask her just once more, she said to me. When Stacy had first met Raquel at the orphanage, the orphan care workers had told her that she liked to be recalled Rachel. But Stacy had tried to call her Rachel over the, for the first couple of months, and she just didn't respond. And so, but, but uh, Stacy really liked the name Rachel. And so she thought, you know, could you ask her one more time? if we could change her name to Rachel. It's fairly common in adoption of an older child to actually change their name. You're going to change their last name. A lot of times you let them pick a first name as well. So I wasn't, I was, I was a little tired actually. And uh, I wasn't really kind of excited about starting another translating conversation. Um, I wanted to kind of go back to my bedroom and just curl up with a book. Uh, but I didn't, so I stopped, and I, and I said to her, you know, Raquel, your mom wants to know, you know, she could change her name. What do you think? She knows you like Rachel. Would you like to be Rachel or Raquel? And I was kind of like, mm, you know, just 
saying that. And uh, she just looked at me, these big puppy dog eyes, and then looked down at the ground. And she just says in broken English, Raquel, Raquel es broken. And I just, it was like everything changed in that moment. And I knew that we were kind of on the the precipice of a big serious thing right there, of a serious change of thought for this child. And I looked at her mom, and I have no training. I, I went to art school to avoid science and math, okay? I, I never went to seminary or studied counseling or any of this. On a daily basis, I say, God, what are you doing putting me here? I am, I am certainly not capable of doing this. And it is only by the grace of God that I can say anything. So what I'm going about to tell you, if you are a therapist, you probably say I, I'm hopefully not creating a split personality with this child or anything like that. Um, but I asked for the permission from the mom. Can I continue here? Um, can I go where I think we need to go? And she gave me permission. And I got down on the floor in front of this child, and I prayed that God would give me the words that she needed to hear. And I said, Raquel, I am sorry for what happened to you. That should never have happened to any child. But God knows your pain, and he loves you, and he wants to give you a new life. He wants to give you a new family. There is a family here that loves you, and they want to take you and love you forever. It is in the United States, and I'm sorry about that. Um, But maybe Raquel is broken, but Rachel isn't. Rachel has a new life with a new mom. Do you want to be Rachel? And it was like the wall, the, the wall around her heart just crumbled. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, that child, she didn't want to be Raquel. And if you tried to call her Raquel, she would correct you and tell you that her name is Rachel. And she poured over all of those photographs that she previously stomped on on the floor. And she asked tons of questions. How many bathrooms are in this house? You know, is, uh, what does the school look like? Where am I going to, you know, is, do I get to ride a bus? She asked us all these questions. And she never again told us that tale over dinner. She just didn't. Now, she's not a perfect kid. She's got, oh, she's got six years of horrific abuse to deal with. But she is a new creation. And she has taken the first steps to throw off the chains of poverty and addiction and abuse that has plagued her birth family. And it is the same thing that we've seen time and time again with these kids. Now, maybe it's not as, as dramatic as this particular story that I've told you. Maybe it's just a child who who has been through failed adoptions before. And so every day he says, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? And then when the judge finally stamps and it happens, it's just this weight lifted off of him because somebody wants him. Somebody cares. Well, three days after Easter, Stacy got the call she was looking for, and God took them home. The child had to be ready. It wasn't about how long Stacy had been there. She has, uh, her story highlights the challenges that many adopting families face. Maybe you know because you've already been there. I don't know if anybody in here has adopted. 
But for the rest of us, it, we feel like it comes back to um, this basic premise. If a family is willing... One minute. Okay. If a family is willing to care for these kids for a lifetime, shouldn't the church body, the rest of us, do whatever we can to support them through the process? And that's exactly what we're trying to do in Nicaragua. But we realize we can't do it on our own anymore. We've been supporting ourselves. We've been, we've been supporting this ministry ourselves for the last two years. Um, and in that time frame, we've, had, uh, we've served over, well, in the last year, we've served over a dozen families with an average of 10 to 14 people living with, our, with us in our house at any given time. You can change it. Um, the last, this photo shows the families that were living with us over Easter. Um, so, and actually the child that I was just talking about is the one, um, right here. The Christian Alliance for Orphans has told us that this adoption care ministry is the first of its kind in the world. And yet there are dozens of countries where families must travel and stay for weeks or months at a time to adopt without any sort of support. These families are stepping out of their comfort zone to change a life. It's scary and it's uncomfortable and we often want to give up. But that's exactly when God provides the glory strength to endure the unendurable, spilling over into joy. I've mentioned some ways that we, along with these adopting families, feel completely inadequate. I want to close by inviting you to be part of providing the glory strength for these adopting families. We began our fundraising efforts at the end of June, and we have about 10% of what we need thus far. We have nine speaking engagements uh, in July before we go back to Nicaragua. And, but if each of our audience is able to contribute $500 a month total in the audience, then we would meet our goal by the, end of August, by the beginning of August. That feels completely scary to us. <laughs> um, but whenever a new family arrives at our house, they always look at us and say, why are you doing what you're doing? Why have you left the comfort? We're only doing this for a short time, and then we can't you know, wait to get back, basically. Why are you doing this? And we look at them and we say, because God loves you so much that he sent someone here to walk through this process with you. And that's all there is to it. So that's what we're asking you to do is basically partner with us as we walk through the process with these families. Thank you. Thanks, Wendy. And Wendy and Wyeth will be uh, available. If you want to talk to them and you would like to help them in any way, you want any more information just about the work that they're doing, then they'll just be over by the info table after after the service and uh, what an incredible work that they're doing you know i mean that's that what i love about their work is that they are supporting other missionaries and other people and and it's not just all about them it's that they are giving and giving and uh, that it's just an, uh, an amazing uh, work that they're doing now if i was to ask you this morning can you name all of your neighbors around you all the people in your street, can you name them all? I look at the street that I live on, and I can name probably two or three or maybe four of the neighbors, uh, but I don't have a relationship with them. Maybe you live on a street where everybody's friendly, but the majority of people in your street, you probably do not have a relationship 
with them and they probably don't have relationships with each other. Because here in the United States, we love just to drive into our garage, never say hello to anybody, and then we've got an entrance from the garage to the house and we go into the house and we never see anybody at all. The only time we actually see our neighbors is maybe when we're outside doing something or if uh, it snows, like three foot of snow, shoveling everyone's driveway and everyone's out there and we help each other. But that may be about as much as your relationship with your neighbor goes. So if I was to tell you this morning that part of the greatest commandments that God has ever given to man is to love your neighbor as yourself, you would probably think I was crazy. Because you're like, why would I want to love somebody I never see and I don't have a relationship with? Why why would I I want to love somebody as myself who just, just because they live next door to me? You probably think I'm like a religious nut that's asking people in their church just to go and, you know, knock on doors and save their whole street. But yet, that isn't what the commandment of God says. In fact, let's take a look at it. And we're going to be real quick this morning. But in Luke chapter 10, In verse 25, it says this. It says, One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus uh, replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So the man, the religious expert, answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And we've dealt with those over the last four weeks, uh, exactly what those mean. And then he says, And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. Because he's asking the question, what should I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, do this, and this is how you will get eternal life. Loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 29 says this. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So Jesus is saying here, one of the ways that we can gain eternal life is to obey the commands of God. And one of the commands is this, is to show our love for God by loving our neighbor as ourself. Now, for some of you this morning, that's not very hard because some of you don't love yourself very much. You've got bad self-esteem. You don't love yourself. Some of you, this is going to be real tough because you love yourself way too much. You know, you love yourself way too much. I think if you're spending longer than an hour in the morning getting ready, you'll love yourself way too much. I would even say 45 minutes, but that's probably about my wife. So I'm like 45 minutes. That's what she takes. But, but some of you, you love yourself way too much. Some of you don't you love yourself at all. But the truth is, we spend the majority of our day thinking about ourselves. We spend the majority of our actions trying to satisfy our own wants and our own desires. So if we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, then I want to ask the question what this guy asked. Who is our neighbor? Just because the guy next door is our physical neighbor doesn't mean that he is the person that Jesus is talking about. So this man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in typical fashion, Jesus did not just come out with an answer. If you read your Bible long enough, you'll find that Jesus does not just say, this is it. This is the answer. 
It, he, Jesus likes to speak in parables and stories so that you can work it out for yourself. So Jesus gave this parable or this story to this man. And, and the reason that Jesus spoke in stories was for, very quickly, just three reasons. One, so that people could understand a difficult truth. But sometimes if, I, if you just explain like the equation of, uh, of why, who, who is the neighbor and why they should love the neighbor, people wouldn't understand it. The, the second reason is that people can work out that difficult truth for themselves instead of being told. If you remember going back to math class when you were at school and the teacher told you, this is how you work something out, you probably walked out of that classroom and forgot about it. But if you sat down and worked it out yourself, you probably never forgot it. Because if you work stuff out for yourself, you don't forget it. And that's another reason why Jesus spoke in parables. And then the third reason, so that people could have a real life example of how to apply that truth that Jesus is trying to say. So this is the story that Jesus gave. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 says, Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But he saw the man lying there, and he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, some versions say a Levite, uh, walked over, looked at the man lying there, and then he passed on over the other side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these would you say was a neighbor to the man who attacked the bandits, Jesus asked? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So Jesus answered this question, who was this man's neighbor? And this is where the whole concept of God's love and neighborhood or neighborly love comes together and it collides together. Because your neighbor is not the person who lives next door to you. I got one neighbor who I never see. They're never, he's never at home. Never at home. Never see him. I got another one who has not said one word to me in the two years I've lived in the house. Like, they like come in, in and out and you never see them at all. Then I've got others and I speak to and we have conversations and I've got to know them and their families and things. But this is what Jesus is saying here. Your neighbor is not the person who lives next door to you. Your neighbor is the person who comes into your line of sight. I'll say that again. Your neighbor is the person who comes into your line of sight. So Jesus gives two examples here of people who try to avoid becoming this man who got attacked, their, his neighbor. The first was a priest, and the second was a temple assistant. And this is what they did. They both at a distance saw the man lying on the floor. Both of them had the ability to help this man. 
In fact, both these men had an affinity with this Jewish man. They were from the same nation. They were probably from the same town. They worshipped the same God. They believed in the same things. And they even had the same social status. But both of them decided to walk on the other side of the road and walk on back. And I think this is for one reason. Because if they had encountered the man, if other people had seen that they saw the man, then by the Jewish law, they would have had to stop and helped the man. The greatest commandment says to love your neighbor as yourself, and they knew themselves they would not leave themselves to die. They knew themselves they would want somebody to help them. That they knew themselves that if they, if they could say they never saw the man, the man would have never become their neighbor. Yeah, there's a guy called Samaritans. Samaritans were kind of low-class people and uh, not like you good Bel Air people and Harford County people. Like, you know, people up in Pennsylvania. I don't know, you know, I mean, whatever. People that you don't, you know, think are lesser class citizens than yourselves. New Jersey people. Let's, yeah, there we go. And, uh, or British people. There we go. So, they were lower, a Samaritan was a lower class citizen. He had no affinity with this guy. He did not have the same social status. In fact, he wasn't even from the same town. And even though they believed in the same God, their version of events and their version of beliefs were a little skewed and a little different. Yet, the Samaritan saw this man. And instead of pretending not to see him, the Samaritan in this moment, knew that this man had become his neighbor and he knew he had to act in love and treat this man as he would treat himself. Let me ask you this morning, who have you encountered this week? Who have you encountered this week, this past week? Who have you encountered in your life? Who has crossed your line of sight? You may have not even seen your physical neighbors. But you've seen other people out there. Maybe it's the person who's in the cubicle next to you at work. Maybe it's the person who you saw in Starbucks. Maybe it's the person who you were downtown in Baltimore and they were begging for money. Who has crossed your line of sight this week? What needs did these people have? And how could have you shown your love to them? You see, I'm a big believer that God is constantly giving us divine appointments. Divine appointments. I think God makes these appointments in, in, in heaven and we collide with these appointments. I believe that people are crossing our line of sight for a reason. This very week I was playing golf with, 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 with two people on Friday afternoon. And I was talking with them and immediately I knew why God had given me that divine appointment. Stuff was going on in their marriages. And, stuff, and I was able to open up and just speak a little to them about it. But I believe that this week God has given you divine appointments. People have crossed your line of sight for a reason. And it's not so that we can cross the street and go on. It's so that we can become the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ to these people. It doesn't mean that 
It's always going to be someone lying on the floor who has been attacked. But it could be someone who's having a bad day who needs someone to wrap their arm around them. It could be someone who, who, who needs some stern advice. Maybe a telling off and saying you can't do this because you can see the path that they're headed. Maybe it's going out and helping the needy, helping the hungry. You know, this, this summer, as a church, there's a couple of things that God has brought into our line of sight. The Willards have come into our line of sight this summer. And it's not for us to say, oh, isn't that nice at the work that they're doing? May God bless you. Carry on. I believe God has brought them into our line of sight so that we can help, so that we can partner with, so that we can help kids in Nicaragua and families in Nicaragua have a better way of life. And we now have become their neighbor. You know, on Wednesday nights, we now have a group that meets here. About 30 or 40 people come and gather for what they call an NA meeting, Narcotics Anonymous. And it's an incredible program that they're doing. And I came and I encountered and came into the line of sight with one of their leaders. And they were looking for space. And I knew as a church that we had to help them because of the work that they're doing. And and if you know of anybody who who has got an addiction of anything, it doesn't have to be narcotics. It could be an addiction of food or uh, an addiction of Facebook which you all have got an addiction of Facebook, or an addiction of, uh, of, of whatever. Maybe it's too much work. Maybe, maybe it's you know, too much you know, rave, Baltimore Ravens. I don't know. But if you know of anybody with an addiction, I would encourage you, tell them to come on a Wednesday night here. Because there are people who have been clean and free of their addictions for years and years, but they came into our line of sight, and I knew that we had to help them. They became our neighbor. See, God isn't asking you to go out and save the world. He isn't asking you to seek all the needs of of this community and go and meet them. God isn't asking you, now we've heard about Nicaragua, to, to go and save the country of Nicaragua. God isn't asking us to do that, but He desires when someone crosses our line of sight to love on them, to try to help meet their needs just like you do every day to meet your own needs. And so I challenge you today. Who have you met this week who has become your neighbor? The man says, teacher, how shall I gain eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law of Moses say? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, And then to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, right, do it and you will live. And as a believer of Jesus Christ this morning, one of the greatest things that you can do is to obey this commandment. The greatest thing that you can do is to obey this commandment. And part of that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's bow our heads in prayer.